We're going to read a, a much larger chunk of John 19 than I'm actually going to preach. And so we'll read this uh, for the next couple of weeks, this section. So the reading's a little lengthier than normal. If you're using the Pew Bible, I think it's page 905. But John chapter 19, I think we left off last week. Um, We'll pick up on verse number 13. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and, and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He had said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it but cast lots for it to see who, whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them and my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said, to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, 
They did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it had borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may believe. And these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in that garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we pray to you, we know that we have a great high priest who is your son, the son to whom John writes about here, the son to whom has been scourged and beaten by men, nailed to a cross, who has died, had his body wrapped, laid in the tomb, that tomb sealed shut, and by your sovereign power you have resurrected him from the dead in a way to show and in a power to show that he is who he said that he was and that he is your son that he is God himself who has come in the flesh and as we read the story as your word is proclaimed by the power of your spirit would you open up our hearts would you open up our eyes so that we may see him and in seeing him and believing all that he is, may we be transformed by him as what your word even says that in believing in him, we may have life, may life flow from this text. A text that is so much about death, may your life, may it flow from it for us. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, you could be seated. And so this is, uh, this is kind of the, the crux of the matter for us as Christians. This is the central part of Christianity. It is, it is the cross, the cross of Christ. It's the, it's the central figure or picture or emblem or image of Christianity. Some of you may wear a cross uh, as a necklace or uh, some other form of jewelry. Um, some of you, you ladies, and I'll emphasize, ladies may wear it as earrings. No, I'm just joking. Some of you men may have your ears pierced and that's fine. And so you may wear it as that. Some of you may have a cross tattooed on your body. I remember whenever uh, my brother-in-law, Bill Jones, and I, when we were building this very pulpit, the pulpit that I've stood behind for the last several years preaching God's word, that this very, the, the wood that built up this pulpit was actually a barn that had collapsed um, in Peaks Mill. So not far from here, um, Bill Jones was out on this guy's farm and he saw a shed that had collapsed and he saw the wood and he's like, Andy, I saw this wood and it would make a beautiful, I saw this barn, I saw the wood on the outside. It's absolutely gorgeous. It would make a beautiful pulpit. And so as we together, we built and fashioned this and we finished it, there was not a cross on it. 
And I remember dragging it into when we met at the factory over across town and we put it up on the stage and I remember standing back looking at it and I was like, something's missing from it. And there was actually this cross that's not, it's not really metal. It's actually like faux wood. Like it looks like it's real um, railroad spikes or nails and it's not. It was actually something that was purchased from Hobby Lobby and I, it was on another cross and I, I peeled it off and then I nailed it up here. And then when it was done, it was like, it's done. It's done. The cross is for us, it's the central figure. It's the central image of Christianity. And it is, as we've already sung, it is a, a wonderful cross. That in the cross, we have a, a paradox. We have almost an oxymoron that we used to sing a, an old hymn, the old rugged cross. And we said that it was an emblem of suffering and shame. And it is an emblem of suffering and shame. It is a horrible device that, where our Savior gave up his life. And yet it is also so full of wonder. It's so full of, of glory, if you will. That as we've been kind of looking over the last few weeks, the last few weeks I've been saying this, that the kind of the main theme of the text and the main theme of the sermon is this, that Jesus is going to the cross as a sovereign king. And so this morning he's no longer going to the cross, but now Jesus is on the cross. And so the, the message for today is this, that Jesus on the cross, he is a sovereign king. Now, let me define for you sovereign, but, and we may even need to define king because we don't have kings. And certainly if we did have kings, they would not be truly sovereign. And we speak about God as being sovereign. We're not just saying that God knows all things, although he knows all things, but that is God's omniscience. We're not just saying that Jesus knew all things while hanging on the cross, but what sovereign means is that Jesus is in control of all things. That Jesus, who looks so helpless, who has been bloodied, who has been pinned to a tree while hanging there, he is in control of everything. And so that when we see his control, when we see his sovereignty, we will know that he is who he says he is. And also not just that we will know who he says he is, but that if Jesus is in control of every, every minutia, every detail Jesus is in control in, in his very suffering and in his death, then how much more is he not in control of the minutia of your life? And if you can take care of the, the small, little, what seems like inconsequential things about his own suffering and his own death, down to the very drink that he will drink, then how is he not in control of the minutia of your life? And he is. As R.C. Sproul says, there's not one single maverick molecule in the universe. That Jesus is sovereign. Today, Jesus sits on a throne where he is reigning and he is ruling and he is holding the very cosmos together by the power of his word. That all four gospel accounts, as you would think them to be, since the cross is the central figure of Christianity, all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all cover the, 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 the storyline of the cross they're all going to talk about and they follow the same basic outline, but each gospel writer may omit or may include certain details about Jesus' suffering and death. And we've been kind of talking about that. And the inclusions or the omissions, what they really reveal is they reveal the author's intention. 
They reveal what the particular focus the author wants to take. And what John is emphasizing here is he is emphasizing Jesus reigning and ruling and Jesus' sovereignty and Jesus as king. He is, he is highlighting Jesus from the cross as an emblem of glory. That's what he wants you to see. He wants you to see and to come into contact with Jesus, not just in his suffering, but Jesus in his glory. All throughout the gospel, as, as John is picked up and Jesus' words, as Jesus has prepared his disciples for the cross, Jesus has spoken about it as a means of exaltation. Not just Jesus would be humiliated on the cross, and he would, as we even see that they have stripped him of his clothes. They've even said they've stripped him of his tunic. What that means is Jesus is hanging there, probably naked on a cross. They stripped Jesus of so much. And yet what John is writing is, as you imagine this, as you picture this, let glory fill your minds. And that's been my prayer for us, that glory would fill our hearts and glory would fill our minds, even this morning as we think about Jesus from the cross. In fact, what I want us to kind of pull out this morning is two proofs of Jesus' sovereignty in his death. It's one thing for me to just to say that Jesus is sovereign over his death, but it's another thing for us to prove it. And in this scripture, in this account, the way in which John has detailed how it unfolds, it shows that Jesus is in control of his own suffering and even of his own death. They're not doing something to Jesus. Jesus isn't the victim. This isn't something that's being flung upon Jesus, but this is something that Jesus is submitting himself to, giving himself up toward. And so the two proofs that we will look at is first is an ironic inscription. And second, we will look at prophecies that are fulfilled. First, the ironic inscription It'd be customary for the Romans to write down the crime to which the criminal was charged of in a crucifixion. So if you would imagine maybe on some, above some crosses, the crucifixion wasn't just something reserved for these three men, but it was something that the Romans did like probably on a daily basis. They're always were crucifying people. And as some people would hang, they would write above them their crime. So maybe you would say thief, or maybe you would say murderer. But when it comes to Jesus, Pilate writes this, he was the king of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth. That's what he writes above the head. Now the Jews, they got a problem with this. They say, don't write that, but write, he said he was, that what the Jews wanted written above Jesus's head was blasphemer. That's what they wanted. That was the charge that they were finding Jesus guilty of was blasphemy. But yet, uh, but yet what Pilate writes isn't that. He doesn't write this man claims to be God, but as Pilate even says, I write what I, I write what has been written. That is what I write. Now listen, when the president of the United States tweets out and he says that he's the king of Israel, the second coming of God, when he says that, that is mockery at best and blasphemy at worst. But when Jesus says, that he is the king of the Jews, the son of God. That is not blasphemy, that is honesty. And that is what Jesus has said. And we even see it here. Pilate has said several different times, I find no charge in this man. I find no guilt in this man. And he even writes it here. Jesus is the king of the Jews. That is who he is. I have written what I have written is what he tells them. When Pilate writes this, Jesus is being properly labeled. This is who he is. He really is the son of God. He really is the Messiah. 
He really is the word that has been made flesh. And as he's writing this, not only is he being properly labeled, but it's being ironically labeled, if you will. Now, irony, um, I think we probably all, most of us, we understand irony and there's different types of irony, but here it's almost like it's, a, it's verbal irony. Like uh, sarcasm would be a form of verbal irony and I speak sarcasm very fluently. And if you don't believe me, you can ask my wife. But you understand what, 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 what sarcasm or what verbal irony is, don't we? Don't we? I mean, it's when we, uh, we say one thing, but we really mean the opposite, Right? So like on Friday morning, whenever I woke up at like 5.30 in the morning and I went to the cabinet, as I always do, as I stumbled into the kitchen and went to the cabinet and opened up the cabinet door to get out a K-cup to make some coffee. And I learned that we were out of it. This is what I said. Oh, great. It's going to be a wonderful day. Actually, I said, it looks like divorce courts where we're going today. That's what I said, you know, but meaning that somehow I thought it was my wife's fault that we ran out, but she would say, write it on the board. You didn't write it on the board, right? (laughs) And so I was stuck with, oh great, it's gonna be a wonderful day, right? Or maybe on the way to work, you get pulled over and you get a traffic violation. And what do you say? My lucky day, right? It's gonna be my lucky day that I got. That is verbal irony when we say those things. And that's what Pilate is intending. He's, he's intending for this to be ironic what he writes about Jesus. He's saying, look at this beaten and defeated man. Look at this bloody mess with a crown of thorns upon his head. Maybe this is your king. This is the king of Jews. And maybe that was a jab at Jesus because Jesus had just told him, you have no authority. That doesn't go over well with people who think they're in places of power and places of authority. Like, don't try that this week to your supervisor. You think you're in authority, but really God's sovereign. Like, don't try that, right? And maybe it was a jab at Jesus or maybe it was a jab at the Jews saying, look at this, here's your king, this bloody defeated mess. But not only what we find here is it verbal irony, but it's also what in literature can be called dramatic irony. And what dramatic irony in literature is, is where the author lets you know what he or she is thinking. That the author communicates something to the audience. That the actual characters that are playing it out, the participants, what they don't know. And that could be true of the Romans and the Jews. There isn't anything that Jesus doesn't know, but John writes this in such a way that we pick up on this air of dramatic irony. That as Pilate writes, this is... This is the king of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth. You and I, as the readers, we we read that and we say, you know what? He's actually right. He actually got it right. And what these fools think is actually a joke is actually true. That what these men intend as mockery is actually the truth. And John has used this form of dramatic irony all throughout his gospel. We saw it a few weeks ago that when Jesus stood before the high priest and the high priest said, hey, I had a dream and, and what's gonna happen here is the Romans are, are thinking we're gonna try to overthrow them. And so it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to suffer. It's better that we st- stamp out this, this revolt or this quell now through one man than have the whole nation suffer. Well, that's dramatic irony because you look at it and you go, you know what? Actually, they're right. It is better for one man to represent us as the new Adam in Jesus 
than all of us to suffer. And those of us who believe and trust in Jesus, that's what occurs. Jesus suffers on the cross in our place, in our stead. He faces the wrath of God in our place. It's the same form of dramatic irony that's now taking place. The irony is getting pretty thick. And there's one thing that I don't want you to miss. It's an inclusion that John adds to his gospel that the other three gospel writers that they leave out, they all speak about Jesus being having this sign hung above his head. But notice what John says in verse number 20. He says that Pilate writes it in Greek, in Latin, and in Aramaic. That the one Jesus Christ who said, I am going to die for every nation and for every tongue and for all peoples. He dies under a sign that has already been translated in every known language in the Roman Empire. He's dying underneath of a sign that Pilate has scripted out and has written, but it is prophetically speaking about what Jesus has come to do that Jesus has come to die for every nation, for every tribe, that it's actually prophesying what will happen because of his crucifixion, that because of his name, because of his death, the name of Jesus will be spread in English and in French and in Spanish and in Hindi and in Creole and in every language and in every tongue so that every tribe may hear the name of Jesus so that on the day of days in the final analysis, when all of this over, Jesus will be sung to and worshiped and praised by every tribe, by every nation, by every tongue. And Pilate, not knowing it, saying, hey, let me help that along by translating it in these languages. We see such sovereignty in this, don't we? We see such sovereignty that only a sovereign God can draw a straight line with a bunch of crooked people. And that's what he's doing here. That only God can take crooked men, pagan men, unbelieving men and direct them to accomplish his will. Only a sovereign God who is in so much in control that when men want to mock him, they're actually speaking the truth about him. When people reject him and when people rebel toward him, the height right now of human rebellion is what they're doing to Jesus. And as they do this, they're actually in complete submission to him. Nothing is happening here that is outside of God's control. Oh, so much irony happened here. So much, even we could even go on and say into the second point, not only is there irony here, but there's also prophecy that's being fulfilled. More than just a sign being written by Pilate, but actually has the events unfold, they are showing us prophecy that literally you cannot go more than a verse or two as we read this story and see where they're speaking about, and, and, and there's a prophecy being fulfilled. That four different times in our reading, John has said that, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled, so that the scriptures, so that the prophecy might come into completion. Now, prophecy is when God tells us something that will occur in advance, and then God accomplishes that in the future. And the Old Testament is riddled with prophecies. That's why most of the Old Testament writers are called prophets. 
because that is what they are doing under divine direction and divine inspiration. Unknowing to them, they are writing things that God will accomplish in the future. Listen, they're not predicting the future like the weatherman tries to predict the weather. They're not forecasting that maybe this will happen or maybe they're not. That what writers are doing, the prophets are doing is they are describing. They're not predicting, but they are describing usually in great detail future events. And we see that here in this text. Before we even we go further, let's maybe debunk this. That there are some people who say, you know what? A historical figure named Jesus of Nazareth cannot be denied, but possibly there was a man who was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, maybe got a Bible, got a hold of an Old Testament scroll somewhere, someplace, began to read it and said, you know what? Me and this guy, we got some stuff in common. And then he just tried to live out his life kind of in a pattern, trying to fulfill as many of these things as he could. And so you have a Messiah that's a Messiah, not, not by way of, uh, of sovereignty, but a Messiah by way of coincidence, right? But listen, that's got all kinds of problems attached to it. I mean, hey, we could blow that apart for days, right? Namely, we've got this in this text, that Jesus, prophecies are being fulfilled about Jesus, right? About his death from Jesus. And Jesus is pinned to a tree while it's happening. Like he's not, cannot manipulate what they're giving him to drink. He cannot manipulate whether they break his bones or not. He cannot manipulate any of those things. That what is happening is, is when Jesus appears to be totally out of control, wrist nailed to a cross, feet nailed to a cross, and yet we see a Jesus who is in total control. In fact, John quotes from three Psalms. He also quotes from two Old Testament prophets. But let's just look at the three Psalms. These are three Psalms that are prophetic in nature. Three different Psalms. Psalm 22, Psalm 34, and Psalm 69. First, we'll look at Psalm 22. We won't have time to read the entire Psalm, but we will read a a portion of it. Get out these things. Verse number one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? It's the very words that Jesus will say from the cross. Now, John doesn't, John omits that. I don't know why, but he does. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke pick it up. The very words that Jesus says is Psalm 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Verse number six, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me, they mock me and they make their mouths at me. They wag their heads. He who trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. That happens exactly on the cross. He claimed to be the son of God. Why can, I, why can he not save himself? Verse number 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shared and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet and I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Listen, 
Psalm 22 is written 1,000 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Do you even have a category for 1,000 years? I mean, that's like four Americas ago. I mean, just let that sink in. Let this sink in. When David writes this psalm, they've pierced my hands and my feet. Crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. The first people to be practiced crucifixion would have been the Persians. It won't be for another couple of hundred years before we have any historical record that a person, a criminal, would be nailed to a cross. I mean, that's like the Old Testament saying, describing an electric chair before electricity had been invented. And David writes this in vivid detail. Why? Because God is sovereign. Because God is sovereign. And everything else will fade away. The green grasses, the flowers in the field, all of it will fade away, but his word will stand for eternity. Ladies and gentlemen, what you hold in your lap or hold in your phone isn't from man. It is from God. And over and over again, he has proved it to be so. And the man whom they have nailed to a cross here isn't just some man, but he is who he says he is. And the prophetic word given, it, 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 it settles it, does it not? Psalm 69, God prophesies that Jesus would be given sour wine to drink. And in John 19, 28 and following, we see that. That even the things that happen outside of his control, they are still completely under his control. When Jesus cries out, I thirst, the Roman guard standing there probably thought, you know what, I got a good idea here. I'm gonna give him something to drink, unknowingly that God had already picked his drink a thousand years before his son would be thirsty, God had already picked his drink and set his drink there beside him. And the Roman guard said, here, I'll put some of this on a sponge, put it on a hyssop, dip it in, hand it up to Christ, fulfilling scripture. In Psalm 34, 20, the psalmist writes, he keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. Again, we go back to John 1931, and we see this very thing happen. They break, break the first criminal's legs, and then when they come to Christ, he has already given up his spirit. He is already dead, and they do not break his legs. Isaiah 53, 9, that Sean read for us earlier, verse number nine, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. John has recorded for us that at the time of Jesus' death, there's actually two men, at least two men approached Nicodemus, who we saw in John chapter three, and a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea show up to get Jesus's body. Joseph of Arimathea is a rich man. 700 years before Jesus's birth, the father had already chosen his tomb. It was a borrowed tomb and it belonged to a rich man. That now Jesus is fulfilling prophecies, not just from the cross, but he's fulfilling prophecies in his death. He's fulfilling prophecies from the grave. Not just do we have the spoken prophecies found here, but we have all of the prophetic imagery 
the time of the day to which Jesus will be sentenced be given. John says it's the sixth hour. I think Mark says it's the third hour. Some of people may go, oh, there's a discrepancy here. What about the fourth hour and the fifth hour? There is no fourth hour and fifth hour. This isn't time when folks got Apple watches. This is a time when they got sundials. They're using the sun to tell the time. And the third hour and the sixth hour are together. The third hour would have started at nine o'clock, ended at noon. The sixth hour would have started at noon and added at three o'clock. What they're basically saying, it was noon. It was midday. Both of them are corroborating stories to say it was the midday, which is the time of the day of preparation, whenever the Passover lamb, whose neck would be slain and he would be hung up to let all of the blood out to prepare him for the sacrifice. In fact, we see also in the sacrificial lamb that they're commanded in the book of Exodus and again in the book of Numbers not to break any of the bones in the Passover lamb. Jesus is our Passover lamb. John tells us that John went out bearing his own cross. That the other writers tell us that John carried the, the, I mean, that Jesus carried the horizontal beam of the cross on his back on the way to Golgotha, out from the, the center of Jerusalem outside and outside of the gates to this place called Golgotha. Jesus is carrying on his back the means of his sacrifice in the same way and in the book of Genesis as Abraham and Isaac are going up the mountain. It is Isaac who is carrying the wood for the sacrifice on his back. Jesus is the sacrifice on his way to be sacrificed. The place of Golgotha, it's the place of the skull. It's outside of the city walls of the, uh, outside of the walls of the city. Oftentimes Romans would line the streets with crucified criminals as a warning to those who pass by, but not Jesus. Jesus is led. He went out, John says. The other gospel writer says he's led out, Isaiah 53. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He's not corralled, he's not drugged, but he's led like a lamb to the slaughter. Where is he led? He's led outside of the city gates, outside of Jerusalem, where the Jews were commanded to give a a sacrifice, a, a burnt offering for sin. Sin sacrifices by burnt offerings are to be given outside of the city gates, and that's where Jesus goes. The garment that John tells us that Jesus wore is a seamless robe, a seamless tunic that Jesus is wearing. Who else wore seamless tunics? One other person, the high priest. In Exodus 28 through 31, we see the command given in the Levitical law that the high priest is, the high priest's robe is to be seamless so that it might not tear. John 19, again, because Jesus is our high priest. Do you get the picture? Do you see what Jesus, or do you see what the Father is telling us? Do you see what God is proclaiming? That this is no ordinary man being crucified, but this is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And even the prophecies that Jesus has made after his death ring true. Jesus prophesied his own resurrection in John 10. No one takes my life. I lay down my life. And if I lay down my life, I have power to pick it up again. Woo, that's what he does. He lays down his life on a Friday and on a Sunday morning, he picks it back up again. He told the Jews, destroy this temple. And in how many days? In three days, I will build it up again. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He prophesied his ascension. We saw that in John chapter 17. Jesus prophesied the martyrdom of his disciples in particular. 
the death of Simon Peter, and that happens. Jesus prophesied the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, and that happens just a short 40 years after Jesus' death. Jesus prophesied the spread of the gospel all over the known world, and as the book of Acts comes to an end, we have the gospel being taken to Rome itself, the end of the known world at that time. And what Jesus said and what Jesus claimed, Jesus is fulfilling that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And Jesus is still doing the same thing today. And some scoffers may say, yeah, but what about prophecies in our time? What about prophecies in our day and what our age? But some people in their hardened unbelief would say, if I could see a true prophecy being fulfilled, not one of these crazy things on TBN, but a true prophecy being fulfilled, then I could believe. But here's what you need to know. All of the prophecies in scripture have been fulfilled except for one series of prophecies. And that prophecy begins with a trumpet blast. And then what follows is this King Jesus appearing in the sky. That what Jesus says, there'll come a time when men and women will be eating and drinking. You'll be marrying and giving in marriage. People will be building and they'll be planning. And then he will come upon them like a thief in the night. And that is it, boys and girls. The, Jew, the, Jew, the, the Jewish people waited and waited and waited a thousand years on some of these prophecies to be fulfilled. And then all of a sudden, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy is fulfilled. For 30 years, for 33 years, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. And then in a span of three hours, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy is getting fulfilled. And the same thing will occur here. There is but left one series of prophecies yet to be fulfilled. And it is when Jesus returns, when the king comes home, when the com king comes to collect for himself a bride who is without spot and without blemish, blemish, and when he brings judgment upon this earth. As we read John chapter 9, you know, one of the, I mean, John chapter 19, one of the things that is missing it's all of the kind of gory details. Did you notice that? That it's kind of a little bit benign, especially for those of you, I have not, but those of you who have seen The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's film, you see that in such horrific detail. So much blood and so much gore, and I'm sure that that's the way it is, but yet John leaves all of that out. As I said last week, it's just seven words about the flogging. There's just seven things that John says about that. Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And Jesus' crucifixion, not a lot of details about Jesus' suffering, just seven words from the cross. It fits within the motif. The motif that John has been presenting, the motif is this, that Jesus is the sovereign king. That John writes like this because he doesn't want to engender sympathy or pity. Don't feel sorry for Jesus as if Jesus is the one in need. King Jesus never calls for our sympathy or our pity. King Jesus only calls for our allegiance. You don't feel sorry for a king, but you take a knee and you bow before him. And in fact, that's the irony of ironies, that there's coming a day when every knee will bow before this king. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is 
Lord. And either you take a knee today in faith or you take a knee later in judgment. That is the truth. Unbeliever in the room, those who have hardened their hearts against him, what other proof do you need that this is no ordinary man? What other proof can we give to say that this is not just some schmuck or some Joe that they drug up and run? What other, what other proof do you need to say this isn't a make-believe story? It doesn't start off like a long, long time ago that this is true and it happened and he is who he said he is and he's given his life for you that you would believe and that you would come and that you would repent and that you would turn and you would place your faith and your trust in him. Oh, believer, may today be the day of salvation. And as I thought of this and as I've prepared, I've just kept saying, oh, what power is in this gospel? Oh, what power? It is the power of God and unleash that power upon us that you may save souls, may draw people to you. You may pierce even the, the most hardened heart, the person who has listened and heard and heard the gospel a thousand times and turned away from it, hardened their heart even further. Oh God, that you in your mercy would penetrate that heart and draw that person, the hypocrite, the self-righteous, the person who has religion and has morality, but is yet to bend a knee to Christ, is yet to admit their sin before a sovereign God and say, God, I can't do it. I need you. Save me. Oh, that you would bow your knee in allegiance to Jesus, unbeliever. And the believers in the room, as we look at Jesus, may we, may we give Jesus a fresh bowing. May we bow the knee to him today in humble worship and in humble submission to him, giving him the direction of your life, the future of your life, the all of your life. Let him have his every will and his every way in your life, giving him the command of your life, bowing before the authority of his word in your life. Oh, that we would give him a fresh bowing today, a fresh surrender today. That either Jesus is sovereign or he's not God. And that we would see that the sovereign God who is sovereign over every minutia, over every part and piece of his death, down to the drink that he would drink on the cross, that he too can handle the minutia of your life. Believers in the room, you've trusted in him for your salvation. Will you not, will you not trust him? That Jesus wants you to trust in him and he wants you to trust him. And many of you, you've trusted in him. You've trusted in him as Lord and Savior, the one who can save your souls, who can promise you and deliver you into heaven. And will you not also trust him? I and mean, that says a ton about the climate of our hearts, does it not? It says a ton about our, our, our fears and our concerns and the things that keep us up at night. Preaching to me now. Trust in him. And because you've trusted in him, because he took care of the greatest problem you had, the thing that you could not fix on your own, your salvation, he can take care of whatever else is in your life. No matter how big it may be, no matter how small and inconsequential it may be, 
He can take care of it. Trust him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the old rugged cross. An emblem of suffering and shame. But a picture of so much glory. And may we not just look at the cross in ways that we have in the past, but as we think about So we think about the cross, the place where your body is broken, the place where your blood is shed, as we think about those things, that may we think about them anew and afresh. May we think about them with the glory that they deserve. May we think about what that is as a declaration of who you are. And as we come this morning and remember you, may we remember that you are sovereign and you are in control of it all. And may we give you fresh allegiance, the believers in the room, may we give you fresh allegiance. Fresh allegiance, fresh submission. Submission to you, submission to your will that's found in your word. We sing that old hymn, have thine own way. Have thine own way. May we just, may we submit to that. In our heart of hearts, may we submit to you having your own way. And Lord, I pray for those in the room who are not yet believers, or maybe they're on their way. Save them, Lord. Save, save folks today. Do what only you can do. Resurrect the dead. Lord, we love you, and we're thankful for you. Thank you that you save crooked people like us. Thank you that you use us. All glory unto your name. In your name we pray. Amen.